what is true? What if Paul is the false teacher Jesus warned them of? That's a lot of Paul. That's a lot of Paul in the Bible. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, we are starting our new series of podcasts, which has grown out of our examining the fundamental beliefs. We're calling this series, How to Live After Adventism. And today, our first episode is How to Build a New Foundation. When we discover that Adventism taught us untruth and called it truth, we're shocked, disoriented, vulnerable, angry, we feel adrift. In fact, this phenomenon is the reason so many former Adventists never become part of a Christian church or integrate into the body of Christ. We believed that we were Christians, and Ellen White taught us that if we rejected her, we would reject the Bible. In fact, she said this, It is not alone those who openly reject the testimonies or who cherish doubt concerning them that are on dangerous ground. To disregard light is to reject it. If you lose confidence in the testimonies, you will drift away from Bible truth. I have been fearful that many would take a questioning, doubting position, and in my distress for your souls, I would warn you, how many will heed the warning? That was from Councils for the Church on page 94. And the testimonies she's referring to in that quote are her writings. Absolutely. That was an important clarification. As Dale Ratzliff has said, agnosticism and atheism are built into Adventism. When what we believed to be the most truthful religion on the planet proves to be false, we automatically assume that the Bible and what it tells us about God is also false because we learned Ellen White's version of the Bible right along with learning about her. If she is wrong, therefore, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit must also have been an illusion. How do we proceed when everything we thought was real proves to be a mirage? Who is God if the God of Adventism isn't real? And is there a God at all? What can we believe? Is our own analysis our bottom line? We're going to look at these questions today and talk about how we, Nikki, you and I, came to believe in the authority of Scripture, not the Scriptures as Ellen White taught them, but Scripture according to its own terms. But before we launch into sharing with you our journeys and what we have learned, I want to say thank you to all of you who have written to us. We love hearing how the Lord is leading you, how you're processing your doubts about Adventism, and we love your questions. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can find our online articles and magazines and books as well at proclamationmagazine.com, and you'll also find links to our YouTube channel there and links to this podcast and also to the podcast transcripts, which are being added regularly. You can donate there using the Donate tab, and please leave us a five-star review of this podcast wherever you listen, if you love it, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And now, Nikki, my first question to you in our new series. Okay. (laughs) As you were leaving Adventism, what threatened your stability the most? And what was the solution to that threat? Well, I have a specific anecdote that comes to mind. 
Right after I left Adventism, I had attended our local Christian church a few weeks, but I still had a lot of questions, and I hadn't yet gone to the former Adventist Fellowship Conference. I think I'd met you guys once or twice, Mm -hmm. um, been up here for lunch, but I really was not unpacked. And I saw on Facebook an advertisement from someone who attended the Calamesa Seventh-day Adventist Church. And his daughter was someone who I had mentored when I worked in the youth group, and it was a family I knew. And he said that he had a podcast that was starting live, and he gave the phone number to call in, and he said that they were putting the prophet to the test. Oh, And I thought, okay, well, maybe he has doubts too. Maybe he has questions too. I'm going to call and see. Well, it turned out I was their only caller. And so they kept me on the phone for the full hour. And there were like three or four different men that were there together, different professions. One was a lawyer. And so they were bringing their particular expertise to the conversation. That's always a big deal, isn't it? Yeah. 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 The long and the short of it is they undermined the authority of the Apostle Paul. And Mm -hmm. they basically told me that in the same way that God put the snake in the garden to tempt Adam, he allowed Paul to enter the church to tempt away believers in in Jesus. And ultimately, the bottom line was when Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that is the gospel. (gasps) And all of Paul's message was deception that Jesus warned of. He had said false teachers were going to come. He had prepared them for Paul, and instead they failed. They accepted Paul, and that's how you get Catholicism. It's how you get, I don't know, all oh, of the air. Oh, my. And these were Adventists in good standing, I presume. Yes, actually, um, the man who had advertised the podcast led a Sabbath school class in the pastor's office at our church on Goodness. Sabbath mornings. And um, I got off that phone call and I thought, okay, what is true? Yeah. What is true? What if Paul is the false teacher Jesus warned them of? That's a lot of Paul. That's a lot of Paul in the Bible. So any Christian I go talk to, he's an authority accepted by all of Christianity. I had met you guys and I knew the conference was coming and we were planning on going, but that was actually when I had that conversation with Carl that I shared, I think it was last week, saying, how do we know what's true? How do we know? And he brought me back to scripture, shared his confidence in scripture, and I followed his lead. What resolved it for me was going to the conference. It was being surrounded by Christians. Now, there were people Mm -hmm. there who were like me, who had not yet come to faith in the true gospel, but there were Christians up front, (laughs) and they were teaching and they were exposing Adventism, but that wasn't the point. Yeah. The point was to lift up Scripture, to lift up the gospel, to introduce us to the true Messiah. It was through coming to trust the authority of Scripture and listening to these people, and not just that, watching them worship. That's really compelling, isn't it? It is. The Holy Spirit was definitely bringing all of that to bear on my heart. that weekend. And I came to trust that that Scripture was authoritative, and it told the truth. And so now my task was to learn it. (laughs) And and I have to just say, the Lord knows our questions. He knows the things that trip us up. He knows what we need, and He will provide answers for us from places we're not even looking. At the end of that weekend, 
Carolyn Maycumber sat with me and I shared just briefly about the podcast. And she said, well, let's look at this. And she took me to multiple places in John's writings that matched what Paul was teaching. And she took me to James. She took me all over and said, see, this isn't just Paul's gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. So it was scripture. Scripture is the great definer, isn't it? Yeah. It's the great stabilizer. Mm -hmm. I do have to add, even after I knew scripture was trustworthy and that I needed to learn how to read it and submit to it, there were other ways that doubt would creep in and threaten to knock me off course. And that usually came by way of tapping into those places where I had been abused in my life, whether it was religiously or in other ways, other areas, mm-hmm. it, the the disorientation that comes when you try to rely on your own mind to oh, understand yes. what's going on around you, always have to bring that back and put it under the Word of God. What about you? Well, interestingly, there was no podcast for me, but it was the doubts in my own head. Mm-hmm. I had always believed, because I was raised Adventist, and you know, Ellen White said, everything's about the Bible. I'm the lesser light leading to the greater light. Right. So I had learned that the Bible was believable and was God's word, but I did not understand that in terms of the Bible being completely authoritative, reliable, and inerrant. Mm-hmm. I believed that the Bible was reliable, kind of like Ellen White was reliable, that there were mistakes that you kind of had to you know, overlook inconsistencies and kind of take the general tone of Scripture and believe the general tone of Scripture would not fail. And yet, I also knew that Ellen White didn't line up with the Bible, although she said she was the lesser light leading to the greater light. By the time I was questioning Adventism, I could see there were great disjunctions between Ellen and the Bible. And I finally had to come to the point where I thought, okay, the Bible has to be what I trust. Ellen was a woman in the 19th century. The Bible is a lot older than that, and it claims to be God's Word. But there was so much I had to unlearn about what I thought about it. I would have these doubts. I can remember just being knocked almost off my foundations with doubts like, what if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. I thought I was right before. What makes me think I'm right now? What makes me think that discrediting Ellen White is bringing me any closer to reality? Whose interpretation of the Bible is really right? And what if I'm fulfilling prophecy? That that thing I read in the introduction from Councils to the Church on if you reject the testimonies, you will ultimately disregard the Bible. Mm-hmm. What if that's happening to me? Mm-hmm. And I realize how true it is what Dale Ratzlaff said, that unbelief, agnosticism, and atheism is built into Adventism. Adventists are taught that if you can't believe Ellen, you can't believe the Bible. And if what she said about God isn't true, and she was the most right of any religion, and that's what we believed, then how can you believe in God at all? In fact, most people who leave Adventism don't leave for Christianity. They go into unbelief because they can't figure out what their new authority should be. And ultimately, people end up trusting their own doubts and their own logic and their own rationale because they don't really trust anybody else. And that distrust is implicit in the Adventist paradigm. Mm -hmm. If you leave that, you're left with nothing. If I feel passionate about this, that's why. I had to wade through mounds of years of unbelief, distrust, questions, doubts, 
and try to figure out how to live and how to find truth. And ultimately, Nikki, we've talked about this over the years. It really is scripture. Yeah. I mean, how many of us were told that Adventism is the most true religion? And I remember having a time thinking, if I'm at the top rung of the ladder and this is wrong, why would I climb down the ladder into all these other religions that have it wrong? You know, maybe it's all wrong. And then after that conference, I wasn't going to climb down a ladder. I was going to learn to trust the Bible. It wasn't about choosing a denomination or a religion. It was about trusting scripture. It's not choosing a religion. No. It's what are you going to trust mm-hmm. or who, who? <laughs> are you going to trust? Mm-hmm. So the Bible makes claims for itself that no other book makes. And I remember um, years ago, it was years ago, I was an Adventist attending an Adventist Sabbath school at the Glendale City Church, and it was being taught by a man who is now dead. He was a clinical psychologist who actually was a Bible scholar in his own right. His name was Dick Neese. I respected his mind before he went to his office to work. He would study the Bible four hours a day, and he would study in the Hebrew and the Greek, which is unusual for an Adventist, especially an Adventist psychologist. (laughs) I remember him telling a story one Sabbath that I never forgot because what he said is something that I found to be true and workable for me. He was talking to a man who had just nothing but doubts, probably an Adventist. He finally said to him, you need to just decide to put the Bible to the test. If it claims to be God's word, if it claims to tell the truth, then if you don't give it a chance to prove itself, you'll never be able to know whether you can trust it or not. He said, but it has to be an honest test. You have to say, I'm going to um, give it a certain amount of time, and I'm going to literally submit my mind to what it says. Because he says, if you hold yourself in reserve over it so that you're not actually allowing it to inform your mind, you're not really putting it to the test. Well, it's a very unusual thing for an Adventist to say. (laughs) But over the years, I have thought about that. I have done that. And during the time I was leaving Adventism and realizing I can't both stay an Adventist and believe in the biblical Jesus, they're completely different people. The Gospels are completely different. I can't keep a foot in both camps. So I had to decide that I was going to let the Bible inform me, at least on a temporary basis, to see if it made sense. The biggest challenge for me was learning to submit my mind to it, and that involved over the course of time learning to understand how to read it. How did you come to trust the Bible? That started for me before I left Adventism when my husband would share some talks from some scientists that were showing that there is evidence that scripture is trustworthy in science. And it was really compelling. It was very compelling. And I think that's why when I read Galatians... I was able to get off the seat (laughs) Uh and go walk into a Christian church. Oh, interesting. It was knowing that if Galatians said it, then this is true, not Adventism. Wow. I was able to trust it that much. But then all of that doubt came in when I went and listened to that podcast and participated in that conversation. I was very vulnerable at that point because I had been lied to by Adventism And yeah, Galatians told me I'd been lied to by Adventism, but now wait a minute, what if Galatians is wrong? Because Paul wrote it. So that started beforehand. And then when all of that got corrected at the conference, Mm -hmm. I was able to remember all of that other stuff that I had learned about the inerrancy and trustworthiness of Scripture. But 
the Christians in my life were the ones who taught me how to apply that to how I treated the Bible. You can't say that the Bible is authoritative and inerrant and then read it and decide, well, that can't mean that. Right. You have to take that truth and put it into your life and live with Scripture according to that reality. And so then it was learning how to read the Bible correctly that really started to show me it was trustworthy because then you read those verses and you obey them mm-hmm. and God reveals himself to you in a way that I can't explain. It's Hebrews four twelve and 13, where it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And no one can hide from him with whom we have to do. The Bible reveals us to ourselves and reveals God to us and shows us how God is concerned about us and convicts us. And it really is sufficient for everything. I didn't read the Bible thinking about, this is what I'm going through in my life. I'm going to go find something that's going to tell me what to do. Instead, I would read the Bible like I was sitting in the congregation that was hearing this letter from Paul. I would read an entire book in one sitting, and I would just pour over these letters, not thinking about my life, but thinking about what God is teaching me in these texts. And then as I lived my life, the Holy Spirit would bring to mind things that I had learned that were important to God and that He expects from me and that He wants for me. And He began changing my desires and my thoughts and leading me into obedience. And that's when it all began to work its way into all of that problem solving that I had to do as a human here on this side of eternity. No, that makes so much sense. And you've just defined something that I fell into with Richard as we were studying our way out. We had never done contextual Bible study. I mean, what Adventist Bible class taught us to read whole chapters at a time, whole books at a time, one chapter at a time, in order. Every Bible doctrines class we attended in Adventist school was propped up with proof texts like those fundamental beliefs are. Mm -hmm. Proof text after proof text yanked out of context. So, I didn't yet know the rule that I learned much later from Elizabeth Inrig that is now like um, a phrase that I tell people. Words matter, and context is everything. And it was the Lord who helped us. And, you know, as we sat in our living room for three years on Tuesday nights with our neighbors who were Christians, reading through books of the Bible, starting with chapter one, doing one chapter a week, discussing it, reading chapter two, that's when Richard and I started realizing that texts we had learned in Adventism, maybe even memory verses, did not say what we thought they said because we had learned them out of context and had never actually read the context. Those are wild moments. They are wild (laughs) moments. Yeah. And what you said, Nikki, is so important. We can't begin to read Scripture in any kind of a meaningful, accurate way unless we approach it like a normal book. Mm -hmm. You know, if I am taking a science class, a biology class, I cannot sit and open that book to chapter 13 and read through it and think, but I think of it like this, and then go back to chapter 2 and go, I wonder what chapter 1 said, and then dash forward to chapter 20. No, we have to read it contextually, page by page, chapter by chapter, and know that the concepts in there are describing things that have been proven, and we have to believe the words. That's how we have to read Scripture. So, understanding who wrote it, and it's not surprising that a false religion would attempt to discredit 
the author of most of the New Testament. And just by the way, when we went through the book of Ephesians earlier in these podcasts, Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 9 that the grace of God to him was to explain to everyone the administration of the mystery of the new covenant. That was God's assignment to him. So, of course, a false gospel is going to try to get rid of Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And it it sure is ironic that they claim to be the people who uphold the law, but they use scripture lawlessly. Yes. If we think about scripture as God's word, God's law in totality, Genesis to Revelation, and we think of it as a legal document, Mm -hmm. and then we think about how we treat legal documents, we don't add to them. We don't take away from them. We don't interpret them out of their context. A legal document is there saying what it needs to say. And that's that. That's what you deal with. And so when we come to Scripture, we come to God's Word, we read it, allowing it to be its own authority, allowing and trusting that this stays how it is. I don't add. I don't subtract. This isn't a group effort to write this book. (laughs) It's written. It's been said. And it's God's testimony to us. And when we know who wrote the book and we learn some historical background, who was it written to? what was the occasion of the writing. And many Bibles will include in the beginning of each book a little bit of a historical background, the approximate year of the writing, the approximate situation of the people to whom it was written. And we can kind of find out the context for the writing in the first place. Mm -hmm. But even if we don't have that in the Bible, knowing who wrote it In the New Testament, all of the epistles say who the book is written to. The writer is identified. The audience is identified. When we understand that, we have to see that these are the words that the author wrote to those people for a specific time. Okay, for example, Nikki, before we do this podcast, we send each other our notes often. Mm -hmm. What we've studied, what we've looked at. And when we look at them, I don't look at your notes and go, Well, I prefer to think of it like this and reinterpret what you've said. No, I'm reading this as your thoughts, as you've looked at a particular passage of scripture or a particular idea. I don't get to interpret them and change it. If I read a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I don't get to change the words because I think she got it wrong. (laughs) So when we read the Bible, that's what we have to know. The author's written this book to these people with a specific meaning. And this is the thing Adventism did not teach me. I cannot assume there will be more than one meaning for any passage of Scripture. I have to know what it meant to the first audience before anything else makes sense. And ultimately, there will be different applications of the principles of what that author meant. But applying those principles to my life is the very last thing I have permission to do. In other words, I cannot open my Bible, point my finger to Galatians 3 and go, what does this mean to me? Mm -hmm. Learning to read scripture in context is what started to show us why Adventism was so wrong. It was that sitting down week after week with Christians who didn't understand the Adventist worldview and reading from chapter 1 to the end of the book, next book, chapter 1 to the end of the book, that's when we started seeing what the Bible actually said. And when we do that, we come to church prepared to listen to what the pastor has to say. If you're in a good church, your Bible's open in your lap with him, Mm -hmm. working your way through passages, and you already have context in your head because you're spending time in the Word 
apart from him. As an Adventist, I came to church to be told what to think and believe. Yes, as and a Christian, what to do. Yes. As a Christian, I come having read the Bible, loving the Word, mm-hmm. applying it in my life, trusting the Lord with or without a pastor, but I come on Sunday and I sit under my pastor who's been profoundly gifted by God to teach God's word. And he brings the word. He does. And God applies it in my life Mm -hmm. and he uses it. And it's so important. And I'm not trying to discredit church, but I am trying to say, that's not the only time you open your Bible. That's right. That's an old habit. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about talking to people who have left Adventism and who are feeling disoriented, upended, and not sure what to believe, whose head is filled with doubts, Nikki, I could think myself into agnosticism. Mm -hmm. I could question everything. Yeah, me too. I think most people who've been trained to think like Adventists could. Mm -hmm. That's why we have to decide what we're going to trust. And I would say it's an educated decision. Yes. We have ample evidence to make that decision. We're not just randomly choosing our crutch. Right. That's such an important point. Now, I want to share, I'm borrowing this from an article Elizabeth Inrig wrote for the Proclamation Blogs some months ago. But along with reading in context, along with just opening a book of the Bible and reading that book from start to finish, understanding who wrote it, to whom, and when. There's some other little rules of inductive Bible study that I find really, really helpful. And I think one of the things that changed my approach to reading Scripture is her first rule for reading the Scriptures, and that is observation. Now, I never learned that as an Adventist. I learned that you pick up the book, you read it, and you try to see, what does it say to me? Mm -hmm. But she makes the point that observation is the most important step, because that's how you first figure out what the writer's actually saying to the people he's writing to. For example, her suggestion is if you're going to just begin practicing doing this, to start with a small book that doesn't have a huge, huge, long number of chapters, Mm -hmm. or just a story in the book. She suggests that you read it more than once, so you get the flavor, the tone, and you see what the repeated words are. You learn the reason for the book, and then you learn to understand where the Bible separates its verses into paragraphs. Now, this is something that I actually didn't know for a long time, but many of you might discover that in your Bible, every few verses, there'll be the number in front of a verse that is done in bold, so that you might like have verses one to four, and then five will be darker, and then it'll have some more verses, and then maybe 10 will be darker. Those bold numbers indicate paragraphs. So, we all know from English composition, hopefully, that a paragraph begins a new thought. So, you can see in the chapters where the new thoughts are coming. But then here is where she starts taking the idea of observation into the actual practical nitty-gritty. She says, who is the person or the people who are receiving this, who is being written to? For example, in the epistles, First and Second Timothy, Who's writing? Paul's writing. And who's he writing to? To Timothy. And he identifies that Mm -hmm. in his opening. In the book of Ephesians, who's writing? Paul. To whom? To the church at Ephesus. So it's not just a person. The book itself will identify who the book is written to. And then we want to ask ourselves as we read those first few verses in the first chapter, what is going on? 
observe what is happening regarding the people, the places, the events. Why is this happening? Don't make up reasons. If it doesn't say what the reason is, you don't know the reason. But if it gives you a reason, then you'll know. For example, John 2 tells us that Jesus went to Cana with his disciples to attend a wedding. And there's a lot of details there that we don't necessarily understand. It says, on the third day, Jesus went to Cana. But then as we read through the story, we discover that the wine ran out and that his mother came to him with this concern. I mean, there's a lot of things, like Jesus called his mother woman and said, what does this have to do with us? And then the next thing we find out is that this woman, his mother, tells the stewards to do whatever Jesus tells them, and he tells them to pour water into the ritual bathing jars. And when they poured the water out, it was wine, and it was the best wine. So there's lots of details. We don't know the reasons for all the details, but we can know the details of what the writer wants us to know, and those become important, even if we can't explain them all. But we don't make up reasons. We just go with what it says. And I think that a lot of scripture will bring us to marvel at what we've read. So, Jesus has them pour water into the wash basins, right? and that's turned into wine. And we can think about the ritual cleansing and the religious significance of it, and we can ponder it and we can marvel. But I think one of the things that we did so often in Adventism is as we observe and, and see those things and it connects ideas in our head, we can start putting things in the passage that aren't there. Right. And so part of submitting to scripture is knowing what scripture and what are you just considering and, and rolling around in your mind and making sure that you leave the authority with the words in the text. We have to know what it says about where everything is happening and where are the people, the activity and the places. When did the events occur in relation to other events? If it's stated, for example, the beginning of John 2, on the third day. That's a very interesting thing that we may not completely understand, but we know that it's significant enough for John to have said it. And then how did these things occur here at this time? So it's observation. That's our first step. And like you said, Nikki, when I had began to observe the words of Scripture, it was amazing how it opened up to me. And it seems like such a pedantic exercise, so much less intuitive than, well, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to me? We can't know what it means if we don't understand what it meant to the first audience. Mm -hmm. So let's just do an example. Okay. Let's just look at John 5.24, which is one of our go-to texts here at Former Adventist. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the text. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's look at the context first. If we turn to John 5, who is Jesus talking to? His disciples. He's talking to his disciples. And he's telling them about his relationship to the Father, In the context of John 5, he is explaining how he only does what the Father does. When the Father is working, he is working. How the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. And then he comes to this verse. 
And I have found from the beginning of leaving Adventism that when I had my most profound doubts of what if I'm wrong, what if I'm deceived again, this was one of the verses I could go to and say, wait, Jesus is making a very clear statement here. And if he's saying it, I can believe it. Let's walk through this. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, what do we know from that? He's saying, I, God the Son, am telling you the truth. How can we doubt that? That's God the Son. We don't get to interpret that. Right. He's saying, I tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. And then he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So what does he say is truthful about the people listening? Any one of them who hears and believes the words of Christ Mm -hmm. and who believes the Father who sent him has, present tense, eternal life. Eternal does not start and stop. Did you ever see that? No. In Adventism? No, no, I didn't. Now, if you had seen it in Adventism, what might you have done with that? I would have thought, okay, in that moment they have eternal life, but they could still lose it. Right. I would have Which too. completely undermines the definition of eternal. Yes. Dictionaries became very important to me after I left Adventism. Oh, yes. Because I had altered words so much in my head. We as an Adventist. Mm-hmm. Like we don't get to change the words or the meanings of a poem or a book of science. We don't get to change the meanings of the Bible. These words are there because God put them there. Whoever hears and believes has eternal life. And then he does not come into judgment. Well, what does that say? There's no investigative judgment. <laughs> well, absolutely. That is the first most obvious thing. <laughs> he doesn't come into judgment. No. The one who believes is not going to be judged when Jesus comes back at some great white throne judgment like we were taught at the end of the millennium. That's just not going to happen. People who believe do not come into judgment. And just by the way, why not? Where's the judgment on them? It's on Jesus. Yes. He took our sin. He took God's wrath for sin. The judgment was poured out on Jesus. And when we believe, we don't come into judgment. And then the last bit of this phrase, he doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There again, you have your tenses. He said that those who believe have eternal life, present tense. And so therefore they have passed, past tense, out of death. And again, it's it's life or death. That's it's right. not good or bad. Yes, that's it's so life important. or death. And he says that they are made alive. You know, I'm I'm sitting here looking at this. He does not come into judgment. I can't help but think, and I know we've already stated it, but this doesn't say he doesn't have to deal with the judgment. It says he does not come into judgment. In Adventism, you don't come into the investigative judgment until you have professed faith. Very good point. Only believers, professing believers, enter into the investigative judgment. Because remember, Ellen says it's at that point that their name's written in the book of life. Mm -hmm. And now you got to keep it there. Yeah. So this really does destroy the investigative judgment. And these are the words of God. I know, Nikki. I never saw it that way as an Adventist. If Jesus said it, it is. Yeah. You can't get any more credibility than being God. (laughs) And my doubts, my personal doubts about, well, 
is he really the son of God? Is he really God the son? Is he telling me the truth? Is this some writer's interpretation of what he said? We have to know that what scripture tells us about all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for instruction and correction and, and righteousness. We have to know that if we're going to trust God's will, we have to trust the only tangible thing in the world that he has given humanity that never changes. And that's really quite an amazing thing when you think about it. The Bible is the only thing that we can hold and touch and lay down and pick up and walk away from, the only tangible physical thing that is unerring and infallible. It is God's word to us. And like that Sabbath school teacher I used to sit under said, even back then in an Adventist Sabbath school class, you have to give it a test. If you can't believe it, put it to the test. Mm -hmm. On its terms. On its terms, Mm -hmm. not on yours. You know, something else that Elizabeth has said about reading the Bible, in, in this outline, she talks about reading the passage you know, a few times and looking for repeated words. But she also has talked in the past about looking for patterns. Where have you seen those words in other parts of the Bible? And I'm looking at this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and it takes me back to the cross yes. where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> and the Adventists say, truly, truly, I say to you today. That's not the pattern. No. Everywhere Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's the pattern. That's the pattern. The only time today follows that is when he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. We have to know that his word cannot fail. And these rules do unpack Adventism. They do expose deception and they do tell us the truth when we follow them and read the Bible in context. There were so many times during the months as we worked our way through Adventist deception in our heads and worked our way out into the light of the gospel. I can remember just being struck like out of nowhere with waves of fear and guilt and doubt. Oh, what if I'm fulfilling Ellen's prophecy? What if, what if, what if? And thank God Richard and I never went through those doubts at the same time. He could always bring me back to Scripture, or I could remind him of what we'd read. But it was always Scripture that brought us through it, and we began to learn that we can trust its words. Scripture's words cannot fail. If God could lie, there'd be no reason not to think we have to work our way to heaven and we have no hope. But God cannot lie because God is God. And if He says... You will not come into judgment, but you've passed out of death to life. If I've trusted him, that's a fact. And you know, I think we forget as Adventists that God gave us the Bible because he was revealing himself to us. This is specific revelation. He's revealing who he is. So why would he speak in code? Right. He doesn't. He's clear and he's honest. You know, another time when I really had a doubt about the words of Scripture I don't remember who, but an Adventist argument came into my head early on as we were leaving, and it was, well, why are we so worried about Ellen White's plagiarism when, you know, the Bible writers plagiarized the Old Testament all the time and never said where they were getting it from? And I know I've told this story before, but it was such an amazing moment when I called Dale Ratzlaff one night and said, so how do you answer that? And he, without 
even pausing, said, well, the Bible writers were inspired by God. Mm -hmm. Ellen White wasn't. And the Bible writers, by the way, were not plagiarizing other writers. They were using the words of Scripture, which those Jews would have known, Mm -hmm. and showing how they had been fulfilled in Christ. And we have evidence, not just from the Bible writers, although they're the ones who, who wrote it for us, but Mary was quoting Scripture in Mary's song after she became pregnant with Jesus. Zechariah, you have Anna and Simeon, you have fishermen who aren't taught like the Pharisees, who are giving these sermons after they've received the Holy Spirit, where they're teaching Scripture. That is a very interesting point, that the book of Acts is filled with the first expository sermons we have in Scripture that describe the Old Testament history of the Jews and show how Jesus came in fulfillment of all the prophecies and shadows. And those expository sermons are all about the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. <laughs> Sermons in the Bible are about the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And they reveal Jesus. Yeah, and you had common fishermen schooling the Pharisees in the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So you can't even come close to comparing how Scripture is inspired to Ellen White. I find it so interesting that this clear statement about the infallibility of God's Word comes from a false prophet who was conscripted to curse Israel, but could not overrule the fact that God gave him God's words to speak. This is Balaam, the prophet Balaam, who was hired by Balak to curse Israel. And the passage is Numbers 23, starting with 18. And Balaam went to try to fulfill his commission to curse Israel, but couldn't. He had to speak God's word. And this is what this pagan prophet said, "'Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it?' Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. (laughs) That's just an amazing thing to me. When I hear Ellen White or when I read Ellen White saying, when William Miller had his first false date for his prophecy, that his first date ended in 1843 instead of 1844, God held his hand over the mistake so people would get ready. And then, you know, they fast-forwarded and made it again for 1844. When I realized that she accused God of deceiving and lying for an ulterior motive, I realized how much and how badly we had been duped. That woman, who was considered a messenger of God, accused God of lying. Balaam, the false prophet from Moab, could not curse Israel. He declared that God cannot lie. When I understood that God's word was authoritative, like really grasped that, and that he cannot lie, his commands became weighty. As I danced between my Adventist connections, and the Christians I knew, and my life in the Word of God, I kept bumping into all of these temptations to compromise and 
you know, to see, to change reality almost by choosing a different perspective. Or, and then I would come back to scripture in my private time and I'd read again God's command to me. And it would again confront me with those temptations that I was experiencing as I interacted with Adventists. And the bottom line always came back to, I have to obey my Lord, yeah. my Abba. Yes. I'm adopted and that's my family now. And while God gave me kinsmen and a history that I still had to deal with, he changed my loyalties. As hard as it was at times, in order for me to obey God's word, I had to let a lot of people down and I had to let a lot of things go. And I had to be willing to not compromise and blend truth with other people's, air quote, truth yeah. to keep peace and to, to, to live up to what is expected of me by people who didn't know right. the Lord. Am I making sense? Oh, you are to me. <laughs> describing my experience. Yeah, I remember standing at the kitchen window realizing I was going to have to leave Adventism because clearly Jesus had completed the atonement, and I had to trust him. And if I stayed and tried to make a difference, or if I stayed and tried to redefine what it meant to follow Jesus, I'd be betraying this man who had died and taken my sin, and this father who had already adopted me. I knew I had been born again. I couldn't stand and compromise. And I remember, I'll never forget the moment, Richard and I sat at lunch, with an Adventist man who was part of Adventist Today that we were at that time contracting with, and I was the managing editor and Richard was the designer, and we were telling this man that we would have to stop working for Adventist Today because we were now Christians and we were attending a Christian church instead of the Adventist church. Mm -hmm. And he literally looked at us and said, well, can't you keep a foot in both camps? <laughs> and I remember sitting at the table and seeing the fork on the tablecloth and thinking, you can't possibly know Jesus if you ask that question. Yeah, that, that reminds me when I left, I actually left a women's Bible study. And I want to put air quotes on that because we weren't always studying the Bible. And I was speaking with the woman who led that, and she said, oh, please come back, Nikki. Come back. You can. It's okay if you're not Adventist anymore. We won't talk about doctrine. <laughs> and I sat there and had the same thought. You don't know who I know. Right. Because everything that's true about God is doctrine. Yeah. And how can I go to a Bible study and not discuss truth? It's not possible. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't. Wow. And those things are losses. Mm -hmm. And we have... Grief, we suffer, we mourn mm -hmm. when these things happen. And we lose the association and even the respect, I want to put that in air quotes as well, <laughs> from the Adventists that we let down. Because, you know, it's an exposure of the difference between the gospel of Christ and the gospel of Adventism when we walk away. Mm -hmm. And it's a clear line in the sand. Whether we mean it to be or not, it is even in their eyes. Mm -hmm. And I just come back to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, where Paul says this, and this is just a significant thing for me, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, that doesn't mean we don't associate with them. We can love them. We can, we can associate with people that we love who are not believers, but being unequally yoked is something closer. It's being in a harness with somebody and working with somebody, and we can't work for the same goals. 
if we're not both believers? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And frankly, Sabbath was my idol, my golden calf. For we are the temple of the living God. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament and says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He gives us in new ways everything that we thought we had and wanted, but he gives it to us in a new setting of life and truth and being in his family. And we do suffer loss, but he doesn't leave us empty. He doesn't leave us empty. He doesn't leave us without provision, but we are capable of turning our nose up to it. We are capable of ignoring it, not seeing it, and choosing to turn back and look back like Lot's wife did. Very true. Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 to 11 says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul is in agony because these people who had the gospel were looking back to the law. There were temptations after I left. Look back. I remember mm-hmm. the first time I watched Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> It was as a Christian, and they were lighting the candles and singing the Sabbath song, and I sat in my living room and I wept because I felt like I'd lost a portion of my culture, which is funny because I wasn't Jewish. But but (laughs) candle lighting was important to me um, in my home after I was married on Sabbath evenings. Looking back and longing for what wasn't mine means I'm not taking hold of the inheritance and the riches that God offers us as His children, as His born-again children that He provides for us, the family, the fellowship, the provision, it's all there. It's hard to see at first because we do turn our head over our shoulder and look back. We grieve, but we can't stay there. That is so interesting, Nikki. I did a lot of over-the-shoulder glancing. And you know, to be really honest, when all that ended for me, was when Richard and I realized that if we were Mormons, we would have to renounce Mormonism because it was clearly a false gospel. And when we sat and looked at what Adventism really was, that it was doctrines of demons, and we had had a messenger that really was a false prophet, and when we realized that the Bible doesn't lie, the Bible is what shows us where to walk what to believe, how to submit our minds to it, we realized we had to renounce Adventism, not just decide we weren't going to be Adventist anymore. We had to repent. We had to acknowledge that we had been following doctrines of demons. And when Richard led our family in a prayer and said, Lord, please remove the Adventism from our hearts and put your spirit in the place where it had been, That was the moment I had no more over-the-shoulder glances. And Richard said that was the moment he knew he was born again. There's something so significant about believing the words of Scripture. Scripture is so clear that 
that verse from Galatians you just read, Nikki, if we go back to the law, now that Jesus has fulfilled it, Hebrews 8.13 tells us it's now obsolete because the reality is Christ. He's fulfilled it. Colossians 2.16 and 17 says, He is the reality that all the Sabbaths represented. When we go back, according to Paul, we're going back to pagan principles. It's not just like we're, well, we can also do the law. We have to let it go as a rule of faith and practice because we're going back and embracing the shadow of Christ. And it's only when we come to believe the actual words of Scripture that we can see our way clear to make this distinction between Adventism and truth. We will be confused if we don't understand that God is real, He reveals His truth to us, His Bible is true, He cannot lie, and He's faithful. He will honor every promise He makes because He's God. And my job is to submit my doubts and to believe Him. And there's a lot of grief, and there's a lot of hardship, and there's loss, but there's joy, and there's new experiences, and there's learning from Him what is true. And I just want to appeal to you, if you are leaving Adventism, or if you have left, and you're not sure how to know what's true, put God to the test. Put His Word to the test. He has promised, and He will reveal Himself. Romans 1-3 to explains that by nature, humanity is all dead in sin and unable to please God. And Romans 1 makes it very clear that God has revealed Himself through what has been made, that everyone is without excuse because God has revealed Himself, but that people suppress that knowledge because of their wickedness. And when we know that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Adventist Jesus is not, and when we learn that the true gospel is that when we trust Jesus, we pass from death to life, we can know every word of Scripture is true, and Jesus will keep His promises. So, I challenge you to trust Him. And if you haven't placed your faith in His finished work, His shed blood, His burial, His resurrection on the third day, repent. Come to Him. Acknowledge that you need Him. Acknowledge that you've been living in doubts and fear. And let Him be who He says He is to you. Trust Him, and He will save you. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view our online articles and to sign up for our weekly emails. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us next week as we talk about how to avoid the pitfalls after leaving Adventism. We'll see you then.